Following the guilty verdict in the trial of former Minnesota police officer Derek Chauvin, discussion over how to hold police accountable across the country for their actions is in the spotlight. What sort of reforms are needed? What sort of reforms will the police accept? These are all the big questions right now. And this is an issue that resonates strongly here in New England, especially in Springfield. A Boston Globe investigation and a report from the Department of Justice both revealed strong patterns of misconduct among the Springfield police. We spoke with Massachusetts Attorney General Maura Healy about police accountability across the state and what kinds of reforms for the policing system are being considered. We started by asking her specifically about the situation in Springfield. One clarification, at one point you'll hear me refer to the Department of Justice looking at 100,000 incidents of police misconduct. That report actually looked at more than 100,000 pages of police incident reports. Maya and I have talked a lot about this, um, this topic, as there's just been so much heaviness in the air. And when we start to peel back the onion, uh, there are some police unions, right, that are fighting this, right? They fought, they were unhappy when uh, the bill was passed back in July, because they said that they didn't get enough notice, they weren't involved in the process, right? That was kind of on, on the state level. And then when you start bringing it in, closer down home in Western Massachusetts and Springfield. Maya, we talked a lot about that case after that two-year investigation by the Department of Justice. Yeah, so there was the report that came out from the DOJ that looked at more than 100,000 incidents of police misconduct of various sorts, specifically within the Springfield Police Department. The mayor of Springfield has said, oh, well, there's been progress made. We're making progress even before this report came out. However, these allegations have been around at least since 2004 or so, when there was yet another report that came out specifically about the Springfield Police Department. Can you speak to what progress, if any, has been made, any reforms that have been put in place? And also, how does it feel that you're the attorney general in a state that has a police department? that's been described as one of the worst in the country. Well, you know, let me tell you uh, in, in terms of Springfield, I mean, first of all, I take seriously any allegation my office receives of, of misconduct or unconstitutional policing, and we have and we will take action. Um, when it comes to Springfield, back in March of, of 2019, I charged multiple 13 Springfield police officers in connection with assaulting four people uh, following a confrontation at the Springfield Bar, Nathan Bills. And not only was uh, the charge, the charges based on the actual assault, uh, it was also based on efforts by those police officers to cover it up. Um, And so those are very serious allegations. Um, And this kind of alleged violence, especially by police officers who were sworn to protect us and uphold the law is absolutely unacceptable. Uh, The alleged plot uh, that we uncovered was a plot by other officers to cover it up and then to lie to investigators after the fact. This undermines the public trust in law enforcement. It's also criminal. It is imperative that all public officials are held to the same standards as everyone else. And if they break the law, they're held accountable. You know, earlier, uh, prior to that incident, there was another uh, incident involving uh, an officer, Officer Bigda, uh, our office investigator, we referred it to the U.S. Attorney's Office. 
It's currently uh, being uh, prosecuted there. Um, so the, these issues are not new. And, you know, it just is, it, it's a problem when um, there appears to be a pattern of this, of this behavior. And I would hope that with certainly uh, focus of our attention as, as evidenced by the fact that we're currently investigating and prosecuting uh, over a dozen members of the department, um, but certainly changes need to be made in Springfield. It's part about changing the culture too. It's about accountability. It's about sending a clear message. It's about, you know, uh, making sure that that departments where they unfortunately have any individuals who are not acting, you know, in accordance with the law, who are not honoring the badge that they wear, who are not upholding the, the constitutional duties that they are sworn to uphold, you know, they have to go. It's as simple as that. And again, with this police reform that does some things, as you know, like limits use of excessive force, bans chokeholds, uh, reforms to no-knock warrants. There's a lot in this Massachusetts legislation that, that is positive and moving us forward. Um, implicit bias training for police officers. Um, you know, we're going to have to continue to, to see uh, the kinds of, 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 of cultural changes um, that I hope will come through through a new day here in the, in the state. We're going to continue our conversation with Madam Attorney General. She spoke on a range of topics, including how to make the fastest growing population feel more comfortable in their own communities. Springfield is an ever-growing population of minorities, and it's the third largest city uh, in Massachusetts. You know, what can you say to these minorities um, that are becoming now closer to the majority who may fear the people that are supposed to protect them? Well, you know, I, I appreciate you you asking that. And you're right. I was chief of the Civil Rights Division, and I was also a prosecutor um, before I became attorney general. But civil rights has been my, my, my main area of practice, my career. And I want people to know that if you feel that you've been discriminated against, if you feel you've been the victim of unconstitutional policing, contact my office, report it to my office, and we will review and investigate. It is important for the integrity of law enforcement and for people's belief in law enforcement um, that, that any actions that are unconstitutional are reported and that they feel confident that they can report it to their government and we will do our job. And that's the first thing I'd say. Um, the second thing is that, you know, I think the, 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 the time right now in this country, I mean, you see it, right? You, you see corporations stepping forward, fighting back against efforts to suppress the freedom to vote. You see racial justice, I think, being top of mind in boardrooms, in classrooms, in community, in government. There is this opportunity right now, I truly believe, to ensure that like this is where we're going to be with us. And yes, there's some ugly stuff happening, but it's going to be, you know, one neighborhood, one community uh, at a time. And it's also going to come top down. And so I would say my message as attorney general is we will work together, community and law enforcement. We are going to go forward and do things in the right way. And we have to do that with trust. Um, and we have to do that with, with healing. You know, a friend of mine, Tina Sherry, she runs the Louis D. Brown Peace Institute. She's a survivor. Her, her son was murdered. And one of the things she and I spoke about last week after the Chauvin verdict, she said, Mara, remind people that healing is 
part of the social justice movement. Healing is a movement of social justice in and of itself. I think that's important for all of us to remember right now. And to Springfield, I was there the other day, actually. I was there last Thursday, um, not on criminal justice, but on environmental justice. Um, you know, these things tie together. And we were actually planting trees, but also we had purchased these air sensors for the city uh, to detect high levels of, of air pollution that could be monitored and reported to a computer database so that actions could be taken or community could be warned to stay in the house. Why? Because sadly, Springfield, Massachusetts is the asthma capital of the world. And how many times do we have to see, you know, high rates of, of, of air pollution in disproportionately um, low income or communities of color? You know, look at what just happened in, in COVID. My office put out a report on this very issue the tie between COVID and environmental injustice and air pollution. Um, and so to circle back, yes, addressing unconstitutional policing is front and center and important, but let's not lose sight of what we need to do to address the systemic racism that persists across all these other realms. Because long before people start showing up in district court or get into trouble or get arrested, or get into positions of power where they may engage in biased actions as police officers or court officers or judges or prosecutors. They come up in a world where they've learned so much about systemic racism and it just is something we have to, we have to really be intentional. And I will say that um, to the public be patient, um, that's a bad thing to say. There's an urgency and a fierce urgency to this. So I take that back, but just know that this will take some time and we can't give up when it gets hard, right? That's what I mean by be patient. We cannot give up when it gets hard. Just like it's harder to vaccinate particularly vulnerable people. It's harder to vaccinate equitably. It just means you have to work harder to do it, to get the mobile bands out into communities, to set up you know, places within communities so that shots are made available. Anytime you're talking about civil rights and equity, it's hard work, but that's what, that's what we're here to do. Madam Attorney General, thank you so much for calling in to talk with us. This was a pleasure. Same here. We'll do it again. Since our interview aired, Attorney General Healy's office has dropped charges against four of the accused officers, while a judge dismissed charges against two others. Seven additional officers' cases are still pending. Only one officer has gone to trial so far. He was acquitted. In a separate case, a federal grand jury indicted Springfield narcotics detective Greg Bigda for excessive force in connection with allegedly punching and kicking young car theft suspects during an arrest in 2016. In December, Bigda was acquitted on four criminal counts. At the time of our interview, the Springfield Police Department declined to comment on the attorney general's assertions. After the break, we'll hear from an attorney from the Institute of Justice who discusses what qualified immunity is and how it comes into play in our communities. This is And Another Thing. Stay with us. The following is a re-air of And Another Thing. And now we welcome in Keith Neely. Keith, thank you so much for calling into the show to talk about what qualified immunity is. And even in some states, it's governmental immunity. I know that you are with the Institute for Justice and our audience 
needs a better understanding as to what's happening right now as these terms are being thrown across the country following the summer of unrest. Well, thanks for having me, first of all. And uh, qualified immunity is, as you said, a complicated doctrine. But what it does, in essence, is it protects government officials, whether they're police officers, social workers, uh, code inspectors. It protects them from civil liability when they violate a person's constitutional rights, unless the victim can show that their right was, quote unquote, clearly established at the time that the violation occurred. And the way that courts determine whether a right was clearly established is you have to find a previous case in the same appellate jurisdiction in which virtually the exact same facts and the exact same conduct resulted in a constitutional violation. So just to give you an example, a couple of years ago, the Sixth Circuit heard a case in which a Michigan police officer suspected a man of possessing marijuana and prescription pills in his car and so engaged the man in a high-speed police chase, ultimately ramming him off the road and then sprinted up to his driver's side door and shot him three times, killing him. Now, despite the fact that the man had no firearm, there was no threat to the officer's safety, the Sixth Circuit said that qualified immunity applied because the facts of that case, the high-speed car chase and the potential possession of contraband had not been addressed in a prior case. So this officer, despite clearly violating this man's constitutional rights, gets to wash his hands of it and face no civil consequences. And it all comes down to this federal doctrine called qualified immunity. And the reason I emphasize the federal part to it is that when you hear that, you kind of think, well, then what can states do about this? How are states changing a federal doctrine? And what they're doing is they're creating an alternative remedy in state courts. So when qualified immunity was first developed by the U.S. Supreme Court in 1982, they were interpreting this statute called 42 U.S.C. Section 1983, which broadly permits folks to bring lawsuits against state officers when they violate your constitutional rights. And what states are doing now is they're creating their own version of that. And they're specifically taking out these defenses like qualified immunity that the Supreme Court has thrown in. And so that's the way that states are really leading the fight here in trying to find better and alternative ways to hold their officers accountable. Keith Neely, a lawyer for the Institute of Justice who is deeply involved in efforts across the country to revoke or reform qualified immunity for police officers. We asked him what the situation is in Massachusetts right now. Right now, there are five states, right, that have limited uh, qualified immunity in some. Governor Baker, he only just signed this limited document bill uh, December 31st of 2020. Uh, and there's a few catches with the one uh, for Massachusetts. And then New York City followed. Getting back to Massachusetts, tell us what the catch is there, right? Because Governor Baker signed this bill, which is great for a little bit of police reform, However, officers will, you know, be their certification will be revoked after a long process. Can you tell us more about that? Absolutely. And I'm, I'm so glad that you described it as the catch in Massachusetts, because on its face, it does look like, oh, you know, Massachusetts is doing something about this. But when, you know, they say the devil's in the details, right? And when you dig into the details of this Massachusetts reform, there's, there's really not a lot to like. So the first problem with it is that it's only limited to police officers. 
So for other government officials who aren't police officers who are violating your constitutional rights, you still got nothing you can do. And that's that's the first problem. The second problem is that unlike what a lot of other states are doing when they create what's called a, a cause of action, basically a right to sue the officer, instead, Massachusetts puts that in the hands of the attorney general. So if you're a victim of police misconduct in Massachusetts, first you have to go to the attorney general and try to convince them to bring an action for you on your behalf. And that's challenging. That's that's an unnecessary hoop that folks have to jump through. And you can imagine police-friendly AGs not being willing to bring actions under this new statute. So that's that's the second catch. And the third catch, as you mentioned, it focuses mostly on conduct that will result in the decertification of an officer, which frankly is a really high bar. And, and that's another issue, right? That's a separate problem with police reform, how easy it is for officers to do bad things and then nonetheless remain certified and in many instances get rehired in other jurisdictions. But the Massachusetts Act really focuses on conduct that only reaches that very high bar of decertification. So it doesn't provide a lot of remedies for that whole host of conduct that police officers can perform that don't quite reach that that threshold for decertification. Now, the one silver lining in the Massachusetts law is that it, it does provide for the creation of a commission to study qualified immunity and to make a recommendation, including potentially a recommendation for more legislation. But, I mean, that's that's a Band-Aid, right? It's really just kicking the can down the road. In researching qualified immunity, um, we found some online forums, Reddit, for example, where people are talking amongst themselves asking, is qualified immunity ending in my state? What is that going to look like if it does end? Am I going to have to quit my job? Is my partner going to have to quit their job? Is there going to be mass resignations? And there just seems to be this sense of people aren't going to want to be police officers if there isn't qualified immunity. Do you think that that's true from a legal standpoint? What does that say about the culture of policing that they might be unwilling to do their jobs if this statute isn't in place? Both great questions. Um, to answer your first question, no, I don't think that there's a risk of, of mass resignations. And that's because the reality of the situation is that all officers in virtually every jurisdiction across the country are indemnified for civil liability. And there's been a lot of great work in this area done by a law professor at UCLA named Joanna Schwartz. And she found in studying some of the 50 largest jurisdictions in the United States, ranging from the NYPD to the LAPD, she found that in over 99% of cases in which liability was ultimately assessed against an officer, meaning in the 99% of cases in which a victim can actually overcome qualified immunity, that officers didn't pay a cent toward those damage awards. The damages are being paid not by officers, but by police departments and by city and municipal governments. So when folks say that taking away qualified immunity is going to lead to mass resignations, it ignores the political reality that these officers have already been indemnified. But to answer your second question, it says a lot about the culture of policing that we have folks thinking that holding officers accountable when they violate constitutional rights is going to lead to mass resignation. Uh, it, 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 in fact, it was, it was interesting. Not too long ago, after New York City passed its recent reform efforts, um, one of the largest police unions 
in New York, the the police, uh, uh, the the PBA. I I, I can't benevolent remember. association. Thank you, Dara. The the police benevolent association released a letter to its members, uh, encouraging them to be very careful now not to violate folks' constitutional rights. Kind of quietly admitting that when you take away qualified immunity and you hold folks accountable, that you can no longer get away with doing all these horrible things to people. And so it's, it's kind of stunning that, that, the, that the, the Police Benevolent Association admitted that. Uh, and I think it says a lot about how, you know, reforming qualified immunity should be at the centerpiece of police reform efforts. That was Keith Neely, a lawyer with the Institute of Justice. The Act to Reform Police Standards Law, which took effect in December of 2020, created a legislative commission to study qualified immunity in the state of Massachusetts. The commission expects to release its recommendations soon. Thanks for tuning in for this edition of And Another Thing. We hope you'll join us again soon. Remember to send us your comments and suggestions for topics that you'd like to discuss. You can email us at andanotherthing at nepm.org. I'm Dara Kennedy. And I'm Maya Schwader with And Another Thing from New England Public Media.